Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. The Columbus crew are champions of Major League Soccer, winning the MLS Cup against LAFC on December 9th here in Columbus. In a moment, Matt Andrews talks with our own Jonathan Smith about the crew. Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, provided an update this week on what's happening with COVID, the flu, and RSV around Ohio. We'll present a few minutes of his comments. In the second half hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Doug Petcash talks to the mayor of New Albany about the explosion of new businesses in his city. A professor of urban studies at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland about economic growth in Ohio. And to Sam Schuler, CEO of the Community Housing Network in Columbus about homelessness and affordable housing. And I'll wrap up the hour talking about a cancer drug shortage with Dr. Julie Graylow, chief medical officer for the American Society of Clinical Oncology. First up on Columbus Perspective, here's Matt Andrews. It's a championship here in the capital city and in the Buckeye State. And for more on the Columbus crew winning the MLS Cup, their third ever championship, we bring in our guy. You may know him as T-Bone here on our flagship in Columbus, but Jonathan Smith is a, a large crew supporter. I've called you, I, I tried to figure out how to announce this, a crew saint, a crew supporter, a crew saver, a diehard. <laughs> what do you want, and how are you feeling, partner? Oh, I'm feeling great. And uh, you know what? Just a just a longtime crew fan is is perfectly fine. I have covered the team off and on, but uh, I've been a fan first pretty much since the early 2000s. Was at games at Ohio Stadium when the crew played there before they even had a soccer stadium. So, yeah. Being a Columbus resident, it was the first professional team that we had in a major league. And so that was a big deal for me as a kid. And that's kind of what got me into soccer growing up. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Jonathan, what's the genesis of your fandom? Yeah, it. I mean, it started with my dad and mom taking us to Ohio Stadium to watch Brian McBride play for the crew. He was their first draft pick. Um, but, you know, growing up in Columbus in the time I did, which would have been the late 80s, early 90s, you had Ohio State football, which, of course, I still love. And then you had a bunch of, you know, minor league type of sports. We had some minor league hockey teams like the Chill. We had clearly the Columbus Clippers were a thing. Uh, they were, a, or at the time, an organizational AAA affiliate of the Yankees. They've moved affiliation now to Cleveland. But anyway, those, those were the teams that I grew up with. Not really having a professional sports team in town, I always wanted something like that. So when we found out that Columbus was going to get the first major league soccer franchise, Yes, it was a startup league. Yes, it was a league no one had really heard of. And it was a sport I wasn't familiar with. But for me as a kid that said, oh, wow, Columbus is on the map. Then a few years later, the Blue Jackets started playing in the NHL. So now we have an NHL big four league team. And that that made it feel even more like a professional sports city. But the Columbus crew love kind of started there. And then as I got older, I, I had, you know, the ability to drive myself to games. I ended up being old enough to you know, drink alcohol occasionally and uh, going to games and finding people that wanted to tailgate and party. Then I found a group of friends. And so that that led to maybe in the early 2000s. That's where I really got into like, OK, I'm going to every game. I'm hanging out with diehards, that kind of stuff. That's what really solidified the fandom. On Saturday, December 9th, the crew with a 2-1 win over LAFC to win their third cup. And Jonathan there's been a lot about the organization, and we'll get into that. But in the context of this third championship, based on the previous 20x years, I guess nearly 30, what does this one mean? Um, this one is a validation of, I think, the crew's 
level of play over a period of time, not just within this season. This is an organization that, uh, you know, back in those late 90s, early 2000s, they were in conference final games. They played against D.C. United, lost a lot of those games. D.C. United went on to win championships. The crew were just right there. But that was a 10-team, 12-team league at the time. It didn't have quite as many teams now. But the crew back then were really good. 2008, they won MLS Cup. The league had grown a bit. It was still not necessarily outside of Columbus, maybe seen the way that, you know, certainly crew fans see it now. We reflect back. It was a great time. The league wasn't viewed the way it is today. 2020, you had another MLS Cup victory. That happened in a pandemic. That was a a thing that there was a, a whole bubble that they played down in Orlando where they played a bunch of their games. It was just a weird season. You didn't have fans in the stands. You had, I think, 2,000 people at Crew Stadium, historic Crew Stadium for that game. This one, you got everything. The fans were there. It's at the new stadium, Lower.com Field. It's the stadium that was built after the efforts to save the crew. And you've even changed head coaches since that last MLS Cup victory, and yet you're still winning. That, I think, now has put the crew from they're always kind of a really good playoff level team to now, wow, they they're one of the elite MLS franchises. They're one of the elite soccer powers in North America. That's, that's a different level for this club. And I'm glad to see people starting to recognize that. And I think that recognition is going to continue. What was your day like? Did you go to the game? I know you had an appearance before the game, <laughs> yeah. but you were there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so given my media obligations, there was a little uh, a thing I had to do for the radio station before the game. But I got there, uh, was in, you know, about a 45 minutes before kickoff. And for me going to these games, it is, uh, I, I tell people sometimes, it's like uh, if you went back to uh, your hometown, like if you moved away from a small town when you were younger and you go back, or if you had like a, really good time in high school and you have a lot of friends from high school and you've moved on. When you go back to your high school, you go back to your hometown, even if it's been 10, 20 years, maybe you haven't talked to some of these people in a very long time. You see them and instantly that connection's there. That's one of the things that I always get going at crew games because I've known some of these people for the better part of 25 years. So even if we don't talk on the phone or even if I don't message them all the time, seeing those people again there was just hugs there was you know elation it was almost a like oh good you got in because <laughs> it's a small you know it's twenty thousand seats these were high demand tickets if you got in it was like oh thank god you got to get in here and see it there was a lot of that and then of course the game starts and all that goes completely out of your head and you're yeah. just watching the game i was as a fan and just living and dying with every pass every lost possession every gain possession every shot i'm it, we watched for, and I thought the game probably was 25 minutes old. I look up and it said it's been three minutes and 52 seconds. I'm like, you got, I've, <laughs> this is going to yeah. be forever. So it was a nerve wracking day, especially at first, once we got through the initial, you know, celebration hugs and thank goodness you're here and all that stuff. The atmosphere looked unmatched on television. That's how I was watching the game, but people appeared to stand most of the match. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, the Nordeca is the fan supporter section, the uh, north end of the stadium where that's it's built for standing. It's built to have people up on their feet. They have, you know, positions for uh, basically cheerleaders, yell leaders who kind of stand there and direct the crowd into what to say. There's a position where the drums and the horns can all be there. They've got signs, banners, you know, draped everywhere. That's that's what the Nordeca does. That whole stadium felt like the Nordeca. I mean, even the even the away supporters from L.A., that was their hardcore supporters fans that, you know, make that trip 4,000 miles to come to this game, 3,000 miles, whatever it was. They were all up for the entire game, even though they were losing part of it. 
So it was, yes, it was about as good of a, a sports atmosphere as I've ever been a part of. And obviously it's not going to match the numbers if you go to a, a Browns game or a you know big Reds game or, or an Ohio State football game in terms of just the sheer amount of people that are in the building. But as far as every one of those people, I think it was pound for pound, I would say it was as loud as any place I've ever been. Jonathan Smith is our guest talking about the championship for the Columbus crew, the third championship ever. And we we mentioned it a bit of me dive in a little bit more. There's a number of fractions to this championship that I find just incredibly uh, interesting, for lack of a better term. But one of them being Wilfred Nancy, first year head coach. Tell me about his background, what made him appealing, and how it worked with this team. He is truly an interesting story. So uh, played in France. Uh, he is moved to Quebec to try to, you know, or to Canada rather, to try to pursue the dream of coaching. Got in as an academy coach with Montreal. And then from there worked his way up into a position where he eventually became the head coach of, you know, an MLS team. Uh, Montreal Impact, or as I think they're now called, a club de foot, <laughs> Montreal club de foot. But anyway, uh, they were known as Montreal impact. I believe when he got the job. So he worked there, did a very good job. People noticed how good he was. His teams were very organized. They were very, you know, good on the ball. They did not give up possession easily. And so he started becoming a hotter name in coaching. People started noticing what he was doing, but in Montreal, they didn't quite have the the players that some of the other teams around the league had. And people wondered if, man, if you could get him out of Montreal, what would, he be able to do. He turned that team into a playoff bound team, put him on a good playoff level roster. Could he turn them into champions? So last year, Columbus decided to part ways with Caleb Porter, who won the last MLS cup here. But two seasons after that, they missed the playoffs with that basically same roster. That wasn't good enough for ownership. And I think that was the right call. So they did something kind of unprecedented that you haven't seen in MLS. You see it in other soccer leagues. They went to Montreal and said, what's it going to take? What can we pay to get him out of his contract to come here? There is a little bit of a backstory there. He had a falling out with ownership from from all accounts, from the reports. So there was an opportunity. But Tim Bezbachenko, who runs the Columbus Crew, GM and pre- team president, who by him, by the way, is a Columbus guy, went to DeSales High School in Columbus. So his parents are season ticket holders, have been before he ever worked there. They, he grew up going to crew games, too. Uh, he did kind of a really great front office move to pull Wilfred Nancy out of Montreal, get him to Columbus last year. And that was that was kind of the story was what's he going to do when he gets a hold of this crew roster. And now you see the results. Uh, the After the game, a quote that was making the rounds, and it was, it was on the broadcast, you know, the sideline reporter goes up to him and says, you know, what do you want to say? What, 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 what did you tell your team? And he looked at the camera and kind of paused for a moment. He said, impossible is an opinion. I mean, it's I, poets. It's a great quote. <laughs> Impossible is an opinion. I mean, that seems like something Kobe Bryant would have had on a Nike shirt, right? Or, or LeBron James. Like, these are the type of inspirational sports quotes that I think just go mm-hmm. wild. They go viral. They're the type of things people look for. So to know that that's the motivator you had behind this team, uh, it was it was truly interesting to see how they played. They were inspired by that confidence, I feel like, because that's been his whole MO with Columbus. Be who you are. Don't be afraid welcome the challenges, be brave, be courageous. Tactically does a lot of things on the soccer field that we could get into the nuts and bolts of. They are also really good. But if you don't have that buy-in from the players, it doesn't matter how smart your formations are, what you tell them to do. If they don't want to do it, it's not going to work. Jonathan, speaking of opinions, 
it is my opinion that the crew hit a grand slam with their new ownership group and the Haslam's Mr. and Mrs. Haslam and how they've handled this mess that was, and now has become just a, a joy. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit on ownership? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and Dr. Pete Edwards, a part of that ownership yep. group too. The, Apologies. Uh, no, 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 that's okay. The, well, he's, I think he's a key piece of it because he's the team owner that had the tie to Columbus that kind of brought that save the crew aspect in. He used to be the team doctor that he was the first employee of the original Columbus crew in 96 as a doctor. He's a, a, a orthopedic surgeon by trade, uh, but has a, a nice practice and apparently has done well enough to work himself into some kind of ownership position. But yeah, when that opportunity came up, they needed a partner that could bring the the kind of you know professional sports dollars that you need to run in an American pro sports landscape. The Haslam's have that. They're you know they're in the billionaires category, and so their partnership I think really has changed this organization because they've done a really good job. The Haslam's have by and large of hiring smart soccer people and then letting the smart soccer people do the soccer things. Now they've had their their opinions on uh, logos that have they've changed the logo since they came here. They've done some stuff off the field to kind of do put their stamp on this team. But as far as the on the field stuff, they hired a guy in Tim Bezbachenko, like I said, who worked in the league office as a lawyer, kind of wrote some of the salary cap laws that still govern major league soccer. He then went to Toronto and built a championship level team there. They pried him out of Toronto, got him to come here. So I guess you can say they've been good about poaching from Canada because <laughs> they did that <laughs> with Bespachenko. They did that with Wilfried Nancy, but they, they've, they've made smart hires and then let those people do what they're good at. They've, when those people have come to them and said, we need this amount of cash layout to bring this person here, be it a player, coach, anyone, they've mostly been up to the challenge on that. So it's it certainly helps to have that as well. You've got to have the financial backing to make it work. Jonathan Smith is our guest talking about the crew championship over LAFC on December the 9th, a 2-1 Columbus win. Let's We've got a few minutes left. Simply the talent on this team. What has shown down the stretch and allowed them to get to the pinnacle? Yeah, I think you have to look at the starting, you know, Big name guys on the roster. Cucho Hernandez uh, was playing in England, playing at a pretty high level. Uh, he's the type of player that even five years ago it would have been tough to convince to leave an English soccer team to come play in America, play for an MLS team. But the transfer fee reportedly was in the neighborhood of $10 million. That is the most that a crew team has ever paid for a transfer fee. They also, to start this season, had Lucas Elray on, who was the previous high, and that's both under the Haslam ownership group. They spent the money to bring in some really talented players. Zellerayan in the summer left to go to the Middle East where he's playing in the league now, uh, and they replaced him with Diego Rossi, another guy that probably cost in the millions of dollars to bring here and then is on a high salary as well. So you've got those high-level talents on this roster that cost a lot of money that the elite teams in Major League Soccer, they're paying for that type of talent. The, the bottom feeders are not. But there's also guys like Darlington Nagby, another Ohio guy, played at Akron. Uh, he has won MLS Cups every MLS team he's been on, Portland, Atlanta, and now two with the crew. Uh, he is a winner. He's a leader. He's the captain of the team, has Ohio roots. He was sobbing on the field uh, when they won this cup because it meant so much to him. You could tell how much he buys in. Um, but so there's there's that. You've got the leadership aspect. you got the high-dollar talent. Then you've got guys like Malta Amundsen. Malte Amundsen was on New York City FC this year. 
Uh, he was barely playing. He wasn't even sometimes getting into the 18, so he was being left off the game day roster, essentially. And they looked at him and said, we can get him for nothing. So they did, and they had a plan. Tim Bezbachenko, Wilfried Nancy said, this is a guy who works in our system. He's a you know outside back who they have as a center back in this formation. He played the pass to Yaliaboa that sent in the second goal. Yaliaboa had a great finish on that. He's another player that is here because of good scouting and all that. Those guys are not necessarily your biggest stars. They had the biggest play of the season getting that second goal for the crew that ended up being the game winner, two to one. Like you said, that was the second goal. So finding those high-level talents is great, but you've got to be able to find the guys in MLS who are just a little out of favor. They're not getting used right. Alexander Matan's another example. They sent him off to Romania to basically they thought he was never going to come back to MLS last year. Wilfried Nancy resurrected his career this year. So they have it at all levels. They have the the cheap talent, the not the not expensive players that fill out a roster. They're really good. And then those high-dollar players have also been very effective. I'll let you end it however you'd like with this. We've got a couple minutes left. From the win over FC Cincinnati to get to this point, mm-hmm. from Don Garber presenting the trophy, <laughs> you surviving the parade, you <laughs> sure. helped save the crew, now you have survived and celebrated the crew. What's it mean beyond your fandom for this city? I think it's a, it's just a really important thing for uh, the city of Columbus, but certainly even the state of Ohio for soccer fans to see this sport continue to grow. I know there are a lot of kids now who can't imagine watching soccer in the state of Ohio without the crew, right? Or without, you know, if you live in Cincinnati, FC Cincinnati, although I know there are a lot of crew fans in Cincinnati too. But I think that's really the thing going forward that I'm excited about is it establishes that this sport, which a lot of people have loved in this state for a long time, now the top end of it is really good. You've had youth programs that are excellent. You've had high school and college programs that are excellent here. Now you're also seeing it at the very highest level in major league soccer, the highest level that we have in the United States. Now that that team is also an excellent dominant team, even the Academy for the crew. They just won Academy of the year. These are the, Mm. the young future players that they're bringing in at 15, 16 years old. Those guys eventually in a few years, maybe hoisting an MLS cup for this city too. And for the state. So I think that's to me, what I take away is, the future is bright for soccer in Ohio, and it's bright in part because there's three stars sitting over Columbus. And that's what I like to see. Glory to Columbus. That's right. And Glory if you to don't Columbus. mind, we could do this again in one year. I, I would love it. Let's book <laughs> it now. Let's make the appointment and just go and put it on the calendar. I hope that happens. You're the best. Thanks. Jonathan Smith, T-Bone, our guy from our flagship here in Columbus. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. The family media plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to HealthyChildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, HealthyChildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy to use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. Go to HealthyChildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. 
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Monday of this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, provided an update on what's happening with COVID, RSV, and the flu around Ohio. We're presenting just a portion of that news conference. This runs about 10 minutes. Here's Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health. Well, as people often say this time of year, tis the season. And in the healthcare world, that also means we're entering the peak of respiratory season. Should be no surprise then that in Ohio and nationally, we are seeing an increase in cases of COVID, influenza, RSV, and other illnesses. I'll discuss each one of those individually in a moment. But I thought it was worth saying here from the start that while the of course, any increase in illness is something that we take very seriously and monitor very closely. We are grateful that our hospitals are not seeing the admission rates and the numbers of severe cases that challenged our healthcare delivery system in recent years. Nevertheless, case numbers are rising. And we know that as they do, we will see more hospitalizations and severe illness. Many Ohioans have taken the opportunity to get vaccinated, but many more haven't. The good news is that while cases are on the rise, there is still time to get vaccinated. And I'd encourage anyone still on the fence to get out today and get a shot. Now, let me turn to what the numbers are telling us. Certainly, our COVID-19 case numbers are on the rise recently. To this point, though, this season's increase is a bit less than what we saw last year, a year you may recall that was a huge improvement from prior years. The month of November of this year saw Ohio report 50,233 cases. That compares to 54,311 in November of 2022 and over 170,000 in 2021. COVID hospitalizations are currently averaging about 450 a week, compared to about 600 at this point last year, and between two and 3,000 in 2021. What I do find concerning, though, is the low number of Ohioans who have received the updated COVID vaccine that became available in September. To date, about 1.1 million Ohioans have received it. That's about 9.3% of us. We're encouraged that a higher number of older Ohioans, who of course are among those most at risk of getting seriously ill, have been vaccinated. 29% of Ohioans aged 65 and older. But clearly, there remains a lot of room for improvement. And let's not forget that this virus is still causing several dozen deaths every week in Ohio. Getting this vaccine, which replaces all previous COVID vaccines and boosters, remains your best bet for protection against severe illness. And recently, new research was published that shows a clear link between getting a third COVID vaccine and a lowered risk for developing the syndrome known as long COVID. Long COVID can include a wide range of ongoing health problems that can last weeks, months, or years. Long COVID occurs more often in people who have suffered a severe COVID-19 illness, but anyone who has had COVID-19 can develop it. We still have much to learn about long COVID, and unfortunately, 
There is no test that determines if symptoms you might have after infection are definitely due to COVID-19. The researchers found that getting a third vaccine reduced long COVID risk in adults by 69%. Compare that to the risk reduction for those who have had only two shots, which is 37%. And it's clear that a third shot provides an important boost in protection against these long-term symptoms. In addition, research shows that vaccines help prevent multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which sadly can cause very severe complications in affected children. Vaccines help all of us. If you have not gotten the updated vaccine, I encourage you to do so. Turning now to influenza and RSV, we're also seeing a rise in these illnesses, though thankfully at a different trajectory compared to last year when RSV in particular hit us very early and very hard and severely strained many of our healthcare providers. Thankfully, while flu is also on the rise, our influenza numbers remain lower than our five-year average for this time of the year. As with COVID-19, vaccines are important protection. For the flu, we encourage everyone to get a vaccine. For RSV, there are two different shots available, a vaccine for expectant mothers and a preventative antibody shot for infants. The maternal vaccine, called Abrisvo, in August received FDA approval and was recommended by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. The recommendation is that pregnant women who are between 32 and 36 weeks, between September 1st and January 31st, receive a Brisbane. The shot for infants is called Nirsevimab. The CDC recommends infants born shortly before or during the RSV season who are up to eight months of age should get this shot. Importantly, though, it is usually not necessary for mother and child to both get shots. If the mother received a vaccine during pregnancy, her baby should be protected and would not need nirsevimab. COVID, flu, and RSV are the big three viruses you've heard me talk about so often. This year, we've seen an increase in a variety of other respiratory illnesses, including well-known bacterial pathogens we haven't seen much of the last few years. One of those is the bacterium Mycoplasma pneumoniae. Historically, one of the more common causes of bacterial pneumonia, especially in younger people. This bacterium is well known to physicians, but worldwide, we're seeing this organism bounce back this year after not having played much of a role the last few winters. As some of you know, Warren County reported a cluster of pediatric pneumonia cases last month. By state laws, certain diseases are serious enough health threats that individual cases are reportable, meaning providers must report them to the Ohio Department of Health. Other illnesses, such as pneumonia, are not reportable unless they cause an outbreak, which just means an unusual number of cases of the same illness at the same time in the same area. It's important to note for context that throughout a normal respiratory season, County-level outbreaks of respiratory illnesses like we saw in Warren County are not unusual. 
As we have been in communication with health officials there, the outbreak appears to have been caused by a variety of common organisms, including mycoplasma. We also are encouraged to hear that the number of new cases reported in Warren County has slowed recently. There is a pneumonia vaccine available, but it's for another bacterium, Streptococcus pneumoniae. There is no vaccine for mycoplasma, and there are many causes of pneumonia. It also has been a year of elevated cases of pertussis in Ohio. The disease, also known as whooping cough, can cause serious illness, especially in babies and young children. Historically, many diseases have cyclical patterns. And according to CDC data, pertussis tends to peak every three to five years. What we're seeing in Ohio is not outside the realm of these periodic increases. But pertussis is preventable and is among those vaccines on the CDC's list of childhood immunizations and is also required by Ohio law in order to attend school. It's delivered in combination with the vaccine for diphtheria and tetanus and is called the DTAP vaccine. As was the case with other childhood immunizations, the percent of Ohio children entering kindergarten who are up to date on their DTAP vaccine dropped in the pandemic school years of 2020 to 2021 and 2021 to 2022. We were heartened to see those numbers rebound last school year, that is the 2022-2023 year, and we certainly hope that trend continues this year. Taken all together, the prevalence of these respiratory illnesses in Ohio should say emphatically to us that we need to take advantage of all the preventative tools that we have available to us. Those tools, of course, begin with vaccines, the flu vaccine for most Ohioans, the COVID vaccine, especially for those age 65 and older and with compromised immune systems, as well as some underlying health risk factors, and the RSV shot for expectant mothers and infants. That's again Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, from a news conference on Monday. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's a segment with Doug Petcash talking with the mayor of New Albany, Sloan Spaulding. This was conducted in October. Here's Doug. This week, we're exploring the rapid growth and the steady decline of communities across the state. We've seen the impacts new businesses are having on our part of the state. And while Columbus grows, other cities aren't so lucky. We're starting our focus this morning on New Albany. The quiet Columbus suburb isn't so quiet anymore. The city is adding thousands and thousands of jobs. Amazon is the most recent company investing in the city. They're spending nearly $4 billion on new buildings to house web servers. There's also Intel, which will be a major employer up the road. Meta and Google are expanding their own data centers as well. A vitamin brand is adding a new plant. Same for a biomanufacturing company. All of this is creating a buzz around town, mainly from all the construction happening. I recently sat down with the mayor of this growing community for a conversation about how New Albany is preparing. I started by asking him what the growth means for the city. What does all this business growth mean for New Albany? 
Well, first of all, we're just uh, super excited to have these great business partners coming into our community. That's not only going to have an impact in New Albany, but on the entire region and, frankly, the state of Ohio. You know, the Intel Project really brought to light the spirit of collaboration that is Columbus. Uh, the region is very well known for that. And certainly the successes we've had in New Albany are because of our ability to collaborate. I was going to ask that. You know, uh, how has all of this business investment uh, happened in, in recent years? And again, I think it's all a team effort. Uh, you look at the local level, we have an incredible staff at the city of New Albany, a very professional, uh, very uh, well-respected in the industry. And we have a track record record of success, not only in bringing in those businesses, but be able to deliver on what we promised. But then you look a little bit broader. Uh, the city of Columbus is a tremendous partner uh, mm-hmm. with the city of New Albany. Licking County has really stepped up over the last couple of years to provide assistance. And then you look a little bit more broader than that. Jobs Ohio, a very unique uh, you know, animal, so to speak, in, in Ohio for economic development. And of course, the state of Ohio has, has done a lot to help bring in these great business partners. When you think about the roots of New Albany as a, a rural mm-hmm. mill town and, and what it is today. Um, has it taken years to build up that reputation as a business-friendly community to attract this type of investment? Absolutely. Uh, and as you point out, I mean, New Albany is, a you know, like a lot of other towns uh, in Ohio, started out as a rural agricultural center. Uh, for years, it was just a stop sign between Granville and Columbus. Uh, and then, you know, a developer came to town and uh, had some other plans and really built, you know, sort of from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And it was predominantly a residential area at, at its beginning, but as the city started to grow and wanted to diversify our revenue streams, we started to attract those business partners. And again, it was sort of that strategic planning mm-hmm. and really putting together an atmosphere that would attract those business businesses into our community, and then just really the forward-thinking investment from our city council and city staff to make that infrastructure uh, available right from the beginning and then attract the businesses. So you have that. That was my next question, too, is how is the city now preparing for all this growth? Well, uh, you know, we've, we've chased a lot of really big projects um, over the years. Uh, you look at our success with uh, Facebook and Meta, Amazon Web Services, Google. You mentioned Amgen, Farmervite, other really great partners. Uh, but the Intel project, I think, really sort of, uh, you know, turned up the pace of development. Uh, so the city is really engaged on putting together that infrastructure, the road networks, the sewer and water, uh, all the things that are going to need to circulate not only folks to the site, uh, but the construction that's going to follow. A lot of people will be moving here, too. So how can the city play a role in making sure there is, first of all, enough housing and then also enough affordable housing? Yeah, and that's certainly going to be the challenge for our entire region. Uh, And I give a lot of credit to a lot of the other leaders in central Ohio. We've been talking about housing workforce, transportation. We've been discussing those issues for a a long period of time. And there's plans in place. But certainly with a project like Intel coming, all of that's going to be accelerated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But housing across all spectrums is going to be needed in the region. We're going to have a pretty massive influx of people over the next, you know, five to ten years. And housing is going to have to be something that is a priority for every community. And And obviously they won't all be living right around New Orleans. Correct. I mean, we're, we're actually a fairly small town. You know, we're 12 to 14,000 yeah. residents. Um, and so, you know, we're not going to be able to influx 100,000 people. It's just not going to be able to all be in New Albany. But regionally, we'll be able to, you know, come together. Each community is going to have their own opportunity is how, how they embrace this, you know, this, yeah. this new partner that's coming to town mm-hmm. and the growth that comes with it. Well, speaking of embracing it, um, you know, what do you tell residents who maybe have been there a long time, who like that rural 
atmosphere and may, may not like the pace of the growth. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I, I personally, you know, I'm, I'm a bike rider. I love to get out there and ride my bike and, and get out in rural Ohio. It's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I have a high degree of respect for folks that, that farm for a living. It's, it's hard work. And, you know, there's, when I close my eyes and think of the state of Ohio, that's what I picture is, you know, is the farm and agricultural communities that we have. And so when, when change is coming uh, and it's going from sort of a very rural area to a more dense urban suburban setting that's a lot of change mm-hmm. and so i think we've been trying to be very respectful of folks that are going through that change um, and working with them to understand what the opportunities could be and the way i've tried to describe it to folks at the end of the day these projects are really about the future for our kids uh, to have those young people that get educated here in ohio we spend a lot of money educating our young folks only to see them leave and go to you know the east coast or the west coast for jobs I want them to stay here in Ohio. I want those Buckeyes that have left to come home. For me, it's all about the employment opportunity for the future. And Intel's factory is uh, scheduled to open sometime in 2025. Correct. Let's take the longer view now. What do you see for New Albany and the surrounding area after that? So, you know, it's 3,000 jobs that uh, Intel has committed for that first phase of the project. Of course, with the CHIPS Act, uh, we're hoping that there'll be a further commitment uh, of Intel looking in the future. Uh, to your point, you know, this is really a 30 to 50-year horizon that we're going to be looking at for this entire project mm-hmm. to be built out at full capacity. Uh, generally, Intel doesn't buy land that they're just going to, you know, look at. They're actually going to use it for development. But it's all the other uh uh, parts of that project, I think they're going to have the larger impact on the region. The suppliers, the construction trades, uh, the influx of talent that is, is going to come into the region. And it's that play that I think our other partners in the region are going to benefit from. You know, what suppliers can they attract to their community? What employment centers can they create mm-hmm. to take advantage of this opportunity? So continued growth. Continued growth. And again, it's, it's a 30 to 50 year horizon. But I think the thing that, uh, you know, a lot of folks have really started to embrace and 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 acknowledge is that, you know, Ohio, we have such a great and rich history of making things with our hands. And we have great, you know, we put the first man on the moon. You know, we developed flight, the light bulb, all these great inventions, you know, Ohio first in in any industry. And so to be able to transfer from sort of that Rust Belt mentality Mm -hmm. uh, of, of manufacturing to this new high tech environment, I think is what the future, you know, the future is very bright for Ohio. And I think this is going to be the project that really drives who we are uh, 50 to, you know, 100 years from now. New Albany is part of the reason we've seen the increases in population in the Columbus metro area. The population has been growing here for the last two decades. 18% of the state's population lives in Columbus or its metro area. This part of the state is really the only area that's growing in population. In the last 20 years, Ohio has had a population growth of 3%. However, when you take Columbus out of that equation, the state actually has had a net loss, some 100,000 people or 1%. Cleveland is in somewhat of a decline, but it's not alone. Once vibrant communities are suffering from poverty, crime, depopulation, and job losses. This morning, we're taking a few moments to explore the differences between places like Columbus and Cleveland. Here to speak about the decline happening in many Midwestern communities is author and Cleveland State University professor, Dr. Stephanie Ryberg-Webster. Stephanie, thank you so much for your time this morning. Absolutely, and great to be here. Well, first of all, I want to start with uh, the differences between Columbus and our neighbors to the north in Cleveland. What makes these cities so different? 
So I think there's a number of things. History, of course, um, Cleveland, you know, boomed uh, more than a century ago during the peak of industrialization as a city sort of centered around heavy industries, um, rapid um, immigration growth. Of course, its positioning on Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga River kind of facilitated that in an era before automobile use was um, kind of the dominant mode of transportation. Um, in the present day, there are also sort of ongoing differences between these cities. Of course, you know, Columbus is growing and Cleveland is uh, still in decline, although a much slower pace of decline than in the past, kind of a, a stabilization point, I think. Um, and, you know, um, one of the, the sort of impacts of history and how these cities developed over time is that Columbus still physically grows, like the actual geographic boundaries of the city can expand outward and capture some of the new growth that's happening in the region, whereas Cleveland um, and even a city like Cincinnati cannot. Um, they're landlocked cities completely surrounded by other um, incorporated communities, and so there's very little opportunity for physical growth um, for a city like Cleveland. I was going to say, so is that the main factor, basically, in why Columbus is growing and those two aren't? I mean, you always hear that cities can build up. Right, right. So, yes, of course, a city like Cleveland could build up. And there is land here from, you know, decades and decades of deindustrialization and population loss um, that has resulted in things like, you know, too much housing and vacant land. So there are those opportunities. But I think these um, sort of economic trends um, become kind of catalytic. So you have a lot of recent investment um, in cities like Columbus and the high-tech sector and, and high-tech industry. And those things sort of spiral off of each other. And um, and so Columbus kind of benefits from that at this point, whereas, uh, of course, it's happening in Cleveland. It's not that there's no growth here or no investment. It's just sort of at a different pace and different scale in the 21st century right now. What does a city well, like Columbus need to do to sustain growth we're experiencing? Yeah, this is a really great question. I think, you know, um, if you take kind of a long arc view of history, these things ebb and flow over time. You know, I think to sustain growth, uh, uh, a region really has to be in tune with things like infrastructure development and how transportation networks um, uh, sort of can can accommodate that, the, those numbers of people. Things like housing affordability, um, because if those things start to get too high, right, if, if housing affordability becomes untenable for a lot of people, you, you can have kind of negative effects over time. Dr. Stephanie Ryberg-Webster, thank you so much for your perspective this morning. Absolutely. Have a great day. Well, there's much more ahead this morning. We look into a very real problem in Columbus, the growing number of people experiencing homelessness, the people on the streets who are helping those people every day, and the concerns this Sunday for how all the expansion we've talked about may only go into making matters worse. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is... You also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. 
Welcome back. Well, it's being called an alarming trend this morning. The number of people experiencing homelessness in central Ohio is growing. While Midwestern cities like Columbus have been immune to the major problems on the coasts, it's creating concern for people who work to help these members of our community. In the last year, the number of people experiencing homelessness in Franklin County rose by 22 percent from 1900 to more than 2300. More people now are also not living in shelters, many of them young adults and families. Joining me this morning to talk about those rising numbers is Sam Schuler. She is the CEO of the Community Housing Network. Sam, thank you for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So maybe if you could just give us an idea of just how big is the problem of homelessness in Columbus and Franklin County? Well, the, the, the numbers you just showed, the trend of growing by 22 percent, that's the first uh, rise we've seen at that level in um, over 20 years. So it's a really alarming trend. It's going in the wrong direction. Um, the number of affordable housing units in our community has been declining. Uh, since 2017, we've lost about 38,000 affordable housing units, meaning that for every 100 people who are looking for affordable housing, only 30 houses are available. So uh, it's just an alarming trend that we need to address uh, to turn it around. What, that's one of the contributing factors. What else is playing into it? I think certainly the, the pandemic contributed to it, I think, um, and the economics of uh, where we are right now. The rents have gone up incredibly, I think, in the last couple of years, like 56 percent for a two-bedroom. So it, people are struggling to afford housing. So you've got a housing shortage. You have the impact of the pandemic. Um, and, and population growth. Yeah, and in the population growth. So all of those factors are, are, are driving this number. Who are the people experiencing homelessness now? Yeah. So you saw definitely more families yeah. uh, and uh, more young adults, and certainly the folks that we serve, people who are experiencing mental health issues. Uh, so, so you have a variety of folks. Sometimes it's just uh, there's an interruption in their income, and, and, and they can't afford their housing. And sometimes it's also that they've got some illnesses that are are contributing to them being unable to maintain their housing. So what is then the mission of the Community Housing Network? What is it that you do? Well, we specifically serve the folks who are experiencing homelessness, who also have some sort of disability, like a mental health or maybe an addiction or trauma-related issues. Uh, we provide what's known as permanent supportive housing. Yeah. So we combine the housing, which obviously brings stability and safety for a person, but we also have uh, um, support services to make sure that the services they need to maintain that housing and recover uh, are, are there and available for With them. With the permanent housing model, is that where you put them in a home so that they know that they have a place to stay at night and that allows them then to focus on finding a job or, you know, other ways that they need to take care of their families. Right. That's exactly right. Most people who end up homeless, homeless who have a mental illness, they had that mental illness uh, at a time they didn't have a good support system. And so they need a good support system. We all do. None of us uh, do well if we're facing a big obstacle and don't have folks around to help us. So if you just house them, that's great. That does help them start to uh, feel safe and foundation and focus on self-care. But then if the support system is also there, they have someone to reach out to to help them with those obstacles that they're facing. That helps them make sure that they recover and that they can maintain their housing and their productive lives over time. And, and people may not know that the Community Housing Network has been around for 35 years now. What does the future hold for your organization? Well, we, we continue to um, 
build more housing because we need it. We have about uh, over 1,500 units now. We develop around 40 to 100 a year. We just opened a Touchstone Field Place, a 56-unit project. We just broke ground on a, another one, the 44-unit project. So our hope is to keep finding resources and build more housing the, for the folks who need it. And if someone wants to help, just give you a call or go to the website and sign up to volunteer. Yeah, that'd like be that. great. If they go to chninc.org, they can sign up to get our newsletter, learn more about people who are homeless, and also figure out how to contribute, donate, volunteer. All right. Sam Schuler with the Community Housing Network. Thank you so much for being here and giving us an idea of just what the issue is with homelessness here. Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Doug Pedcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. It might be hard to imagine, but there's a place where you can find a restaurant on every corner. A place where you can eat like a king for as little as a dollar. It might be hard to imagine, but this is the same place where the school lunches aren't just delicious. They're themed with palate pleasers like mozzarella stick Mondays, taco Tuesdays, and French Fridays. Heck, even pizza counts as a vegetable here. This is a place where the fast food just keeps getting faster. You can even order delivery right from your video game console. And how's the food, you ask? Well, it is to die for. Don't believe us? Just ask the friends and family of the 300,000 who did last year. Welcome to the state of America. Welcome to Obesity USA. Population 115 million and getting bigger by the day. To learn more, go to visitobesity.org. That's visit visitobesity.org. Brought to you by the Pennington Biomedical Research Foundation. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun, and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Julie Grelo, who is the Chief Medical Officer for the American Society of Clinical Oncology. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for talking to us. You are a medical oncologist and also one of the nation's leading breast cancer specialists, and you have concerns about the availability of cancer drugs. Absolutely. Uh, it's been in the headlines lately, so many people are aware that over the past year, we have had shortages of two major cancer drugs that could be used to treat up to half a million people a year. It's a complicated uh, set of problems, but the, the, the real background behind it is we just can't make these drugs for the price we're paying for them. When drugs go off patent and uh, the market economics come into play, 
they, the price is driven down. There's a lot of competition. And all of a sudden, we're taking these drugs and not paying enough, actually, for what it costs to make them. It's very different from the drugs you hear about on the news, the new blockbusters that are still on patent that might be ten dollars to $20,000 a month. I mean, these drugs, in some cases, are $50 a dose, and you just can't make them for that price. So we've got to fix the system and reward for high-quality drugs. Wow, that's really interesting, because that's just the opposite of what I was expecting you to say. You know, and you think about people overpaying for drugs all the time, and yet you're saying this is not that case at all. Absolutely. I think we've really got to think about how we pay for healthcare in general and cancer treatment and understand the difference between these older drugs, many of which are proven, they're critical, they result in more cures, longer survival, and the newer, the hot ones that are actually very expensive. And we need to deal with those issues entirely separately. The uh, American Association of Cancer Research said that this year the drug shortage is the worst it's ever been. Did the pandemic play any role at all in that, or what's going on with that? I don't think the pandemic played a major role, except that goes out and audits the, the places that make the raw ingredients and the manufacturing sites. That was pulled way back during the pandemic. So a lot of these drugs are made in places like India. China. And during the pandemic, there were less audits. So in this exact case, where we're talking about these two drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, the place that made the raw ingredients in India that accounted for a lot of the production of these drugs hadn't been audited in a while. And at the end of last year, now that the pandemic was winding down, they went and audited the facility and found some major deficiencies. And so that delay in audits might have contributed a little bit. But this is a situation that's been going on, you know, for for years and years. Uh, so the pandemic isn't the root cause, but it might have exacerbated the situation. Are people dying as a result of this shortage? We don't have that data. We're clearly tracking it. What ASCO did when uh, we started hearing about the shortage was we got together our experts and came up with guidelines that said what to do if you can't get a certain drug. What are evidence-based proven substitutions? Where should you reserve your very limited supply for where there aren't good substitutions? So we're hoping that with a lot of the mitigation that we did, where we helped direct drug where it was absolutely 100% the best therapy and offered substitutions in other cases. We're hoping that we have not created more cancer deaths, but we are closely monitoring this over time. And sadly, it's possible um, that there, this could have contributed uh, to either sooner cancer deaths or long-term, maybe a higher risk of recurrence. Talking with Dr. Julie Graylow, she's the chief medical officer of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. The White House has a a page uh, devoted to this issue and says that of the 15 drugs overall, cancer drugs of which there's a shortage, there are 400,000 people that are relying on them in the U.S. That's absolutely right. I'm talking mainly about the two drugs that were such a critical shortage earlier in the year. Um, still in some shortage, but there are many other cancer drugs on the list. And by the way, this isn't peculiar and isolated to cancer. Infections, um, 
you know, the drugs that we use to treat infections, um, some of those old ones, really reliable good ones are on the list. Some anesthesia medications, pain meds are on the list. So um, while we're talking about cancer, um, this is more related to how do we produce what are primarily drugs that are injected into the bloodstream, tablets, um, capsules, things we take by mouth. They're much easier to make, and we worry much less about the sterility, you know, the infection risk. Um, But when you're creating drugs that get injected directly into the bloodstream, um, there are much higher standards. They're more complicated to make. And those are primarily the drugs that are in short supply. So what is the solution? What are you wanting to see happen? Well, what we're doing is we're asking for bipartisan support um, in fixing drug shortages. There's lots of proposals on the table in Congress. In your area, Senator Sherrod Brown is on uh, the Finance Committee. So we're asking Congress to look at these economic factors that are driving manufacturers out of the market. We need to stabilize the market with long-term contracts, guaranteed prices. We want to incentivize U.S. production of these critical medications. We want to improve communication so that when a, there's a failed audit like occurred here or another problem at a manufacturing site, we know as soon as possible so we can start ramping up planning for how to adapt. We want the FDA to have into what's happening in the supply chain and access to more data so we can predict and respond to potential shortages earlier. And we want to require manufacturers to report to the FDA if they start seeing an increase in demand that might speak to that there's a short supply. So those are the kinds of things we're asking for. And we're asking your listeners, contact uh, Dr. Brown on the Finance Committee, uh, sorry, Senator Brown on the Finance Committee, um, and say we need to fix these things uh, and hopefully with a bipartisan support. Does everybody, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, want cancer patients to have the best chance of cure? Well, what about uh, potential fallout? Because if it's more money that needs to be uh, sent to the manufacturers of these drugs, uh, you know, that's kind of happening with Alzheimer's drugs with Medicare and possibly causing premiums to go up. And that wouldn't this kind of escalate that kind of thing across the board in the medical insurance category? Well, that's a great question. But some of these drugs cost $50 a dose. So if we're going to pay 55 or $60 a dose, that is very different from your example of these very expensive Alzheimer's drugs, right? So um, we can figure out ways uh, to account for a very small, in the big scheme of things, increase in price that would actually stabilize the market. Okay. Dr. Graylow, are you recommending a website where folks can find more information? Well, we created a website mainly at the physician level, but everybody's welcome to look at it. It's asco.org. That's A-S-C-O dot O-R-G, hashtag um, drug dash shortages. If you go on there, you can find information. I told you about the guidance for how to substitute. Um, We've got drug shortages in the news. We've got, you know, congressional and regulatory activities listed on there. So while the website is designed for our members who are clinicians who treat cancer, um, uh, you can find a lot of good information on that page. Great. Dr. Julie Graylow, Chief Medical Officer, American Society of Clinical Oncology. Thanks for your time and the information today. Thanks, Dave. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.